take you back to where I was way back in 1994. I'll start with I had a full head of hair. But I was uh, a CPA. I had the great honor and privilege of working at the largest accounting firm in the world. I was at the largest, most profitable office of the most profitable and largest accounting firm in the entire world, Arthur Anderson in Houston. And yet every day I woke up and in the shower I said to myself, there's got to be something There's got to be more to life than this. Ended up working for another one of the largest accounting firms in the world, and I still had that same resounding cry of my heart every morning in the shower, there's got to be more to life than this. So I really started digging, soul-searching, digging deep, going, what is it? And so I concluded I was passionate about helping others. And so I said, well, what can I do that's more that can take my accounting background and apply it to people's lives and help people. And so I went into financial planning. And so I was hired by a brokerage firm, and all the new hires from around the country were shipped to Memphis, Tennessee, all treated like we were something special. And I believed every bit of it. I thought I was something special. And we sat in this conference room at the top floor of the tower in Memphis, and the training, the guy who was there to train us, his name was Jock Wisnett. And he looked like his name sounds, Jock Wisnett. He had black, jet black hair and a black mustache. He looked just like Hitler, and I'm not kidding. And he smoked a cigarette in that conference room back then. That's how long ago it was. And he said, (laughs) he just filled the room with smoke. He sucked it so hard it popped. (laughs) And he walked and he looked at us and he says, let's get one thing straight. And I'm super excited to help people. I've got my papers and I've got my pen. And I'm like, yes, let's do this. I'm so excited about my new venture in life. He says, if you're here for altruistic reasons because you want to help people, you're in the wrong place. You're here to sell. And I was crushed. I was immediately, I knew that moment, I'm out. 18 months later when my salary that was a fading salary dried up, I peaced out. And I said, what am I supposed to be doing? There's got to be more to life than this. So I go another route, end up at another firm, only to find more of the same. My manager at the time says, here's how we do this. What do you really want to obtain? What's something that you want to buy? And those of you who know me know the one thing that I wanted to buy then was a boat. And though he said, all right, figure out that dream boat that you want and get a picture of it and tape it on your computer screen and you get up here every day and you look at that boat and you say, I'm going to do whatever it takes to get that boat. And I wanted to vomit. Really? Is this what life is all about? I lived with this nagging question in my soul. There's got to be more to life than this, more than making money, paying bills, taking a nice trip, and doing it all again. And yet everywhere I went in the business world, that's what I was told. This is what life is about. Stuff. Possessions. We get to the heart of the text today, and that's really what is the question of the text, is what is your life all about? 
What are you working for? What are you living for? Why are you doing what you're doing? Do you ever wonder what it's all about? I know you do. We all do. There's got to be more to life than this. At the heart of that, we're going to see in Luke 12, verses 13 through 48. Turn to Luke 12, 13 through 48. We're going to see there's a, a nagging question at the heart of every person. What is this life all about? Jesus is teaching his disciples. We've skipped several chapters, some of you, or, or several passages. Some of you are wondering why we're skipping this. Because we'd be in Luke for 19 years if I didn't. And so I'm trying to commit to, as I read and I choose a text trying to keep it all in the context to be faithful but I love what this scene is this Luke records this scene and Jesus is teaching his disciples and he's telling them uh, as the Lord he says as I return there's this anticipation of how do you live now how are you faithful now in this life as you await his return and he's preaching and he's teaching and then someone just rudely interrupts him in the crowd it says in verse 13 teacher Tell my brother to divide my inheritance with me. I love that scene. I just imagine me in here preaching and, and one of you's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, Tracy, would you tell my brother to give me my inheritance? I'd just be like, okay, this is awkward. I thought I was going to preach about this, but apparently I got to pivot and preach on this. And then I respond the way Jesus responds. And he says, hey, take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, this guy doesn't have ears for anything else. He's obsessed with this inheritance. Pastor, I don't want to hear what you're talking about. I just want you to tell my brother, show me the money. Give me my money. And Jesus responds... You need to be real careful about coveting. Be on guard. Take care. Life is about more than the abundance of possessions. That's the point today. You and I need to take great care. We especially need to be very careful to be on guard against covetousness because life is about more than the abundance of possessions. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Would you help us to continue to live faithfully in light of the cross? Lord, as we look forward to your swift return, Lord, would you help us live faithfully knowing that when you come back or when we meet you face to face, that there will be an accounting for how we lived. Help us to remember life is about more than the abundance of possessions. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We all need this message, don't we? I don't know about you, but I need it. Every day, everything in this life, everything in this world, the fact that so much time is spent going to work, I need the constant reminder that life is about more than the abundance of, protect, of possessions. So be very careful not to get covetous. So the way Jesus is going to help us remain faithful is he's going to do two things. First, he's going to give us a nice little look at the profile of the foolish one. 
And then he's going to contrast that with the faithful one. So let's look at the foolish. In verse 16 through 30, we see the foolish. Jesus tells him a parable, and he basically says, here is a man that I'm going to tell you is foolish. But it's really interesting to think about this parable. He says, Jesus told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, well, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear, tear down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Now stop there for a minute. What's your impression of this guy so far? Now we tend to think negatively because we know Jesus is telling us, hey, watch against covetous. Let me tell you about this man. And we know where it goes. But before we go quickly to the negative, I think there's something to be learned here about this guy. I see a very successful farmer. I mean, he's had a bumper crop. Now, you can't always control it, but he did something right so that when everything fell into place, he had a great year. He's a sharp farmer. I also see a shrewd, smart businessman. He's, I mean, there's a lot of ways to go with this, but one thing you can see here is he's smart. He's thinking, well, I've got these barns that are already using up this land, and if a barn is on a piece of land, you can't farm that land. And so he's like, well, if I go build another barn, I'm going to use up my, my land that produces profit. I'm going to cut into my production and my profitability. So while this goes against common wisdom, he says, I'm going to calculate the cost of what would it take to tear down this existing barn and on the same footprint build an even bigger barn. I see a really smart, successful businessman. A smart, effective farmer and businessman. Is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. God absolutely calls us to use the gifts, the talents, the brain, the resources to do everything we can to the best of our ability, to do a great job. And I think that's where we are with this guy. Some would say, well, no, he's building because he's being greedy. And we'll get to the negative. But let's start, first of all, and acknowledge this is a wise, very smart farmer businessman. And then we go, we, verse 19, and it starts to turn negative. And then he says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So stop there. So God clearly comes down on him and says, you fool. Now what does that mean when he says, you fool? A fool, the Bible says, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And so what we see, the real problem with this man is not that he was successful at farming, not that he made a, a shrewd business decision. The real problem is that as he was very successful as a farmer, as he was very wise and smart in his business acumen, the problem is he was a practicing atheist. He did it all as if there was no God. And that's what a fool does. 
lives as if there is no God. He says, I'm a self-made man. He says in verse 19, I will say to myself, now my soul can rest. Now I can be safe. Now I have security. Now I have comfort. Look what I have done. You see, he, he lives as if he is the God of his universe. As if there is no God. He views his, his job as I have to provide for my comfort, for my safety, for my security. I depend on my own strength for all that I need and all that I do. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, in every sense of the word. I will give my soul rest. And that's the problem. The problem is this man did it all as if there was no God or as if he was God. He worked and lived all of life with this one purpose in mind. I will get all I can and I will can all I can get so I will feel safe, secure, and comfortable. And God says, you're a fool. Let me ask you something. If you're here, you probably say you're a Christian. But are you practicing life like an atheist? You get up and go to work. You do your job. Are you doing it like there is no God? Are you planning your own financial planning, your, your retirement, your savings, as if there is no God? Are your business decisions however great they may be, any different than an atheist. If so, God would say, you're a fool. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. When Jesus said to him, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared all that you've saved, this safety that you've given your life to, this barn full of security and comfort that you've given your life to, this night when you die, it's all gone. You fool. You can't take it with you. Paul says to live is Christ then to die is gain because to live is Christ, then die is more Christ. But if to live is riches, then to die is poverty. If to live is pleasure, then to die is pain. If to live is possessions, then to die is bankruptcy. If to live is anything but Christ, then to die is failure. What is your life about? What are you living for? Why do you do what you do? There's got to be more to life than this. And that's that futility that we all live with and we all know it. The Lord has put within our heart a sense of futility. I can work all of my life. I can be successful. I can do the best with my kids. I can kill it in my business. I can have franchises everywhere. I can have this huge, incredible business. And a pandemic can take it all away overnight. It's futile. 
you can't secure your future. You aren't God. And that's humbling. Look at verse 22. He explains such foolishness of that life further. He says in verse 22, he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and body is more than clothing. Now, if you struggle with anxiety, I know you hate this verse. Because you go, that is just oversimplistic. Oh, you're anxious? Well, Luke 12 says, don't be anxious. And you're like, oh, I hate that. Because, you see, here's the problem. That's not what this text is saying. This text is not saying, don't be anxious. This text is saying, don't be greedy. If your life, if your life is built around your angst to provide for yourself... If you go to work is driven by your angst to provide your own retirement, your own security, a bigger bank account, more stuff, a better vacation, you better be real careful, is what Jesus is saying. You're making life all about the abundance of your possessions. Now that may, by the way, also help you battle your anxiety. But this passage is all about be very careful about greed and coveting Because life is more about providing clothes and shelter for yourself. Don't be driven by your anxiety to be a self-made person, is what he's saying. Don't live as if there's no God. So guard against greed and covetousness. There's more to life than that. Is there more to life than that? Is there more than this? Absolutely. There is an eternal, significant purpose for everything you do when you get out of bed. There's a higher calling. We have got to get rid of what is called the secular, sacred divide. What am I talking about? We have in our mindset, I battle with it every day because I grew up and there was Jesus... This is well before I became a pastor. Hear me say that. This is what I saw growing up. There's Jesus, and then there's the pastor. And then there's the rest of us commoners. That that pastor is sacred, and what he and the staff do is sacred. But what we do is just a secular job. And that's hogwash. That's a Hebrew word. That's hogwash. As a pastor now, what I do is no more sacred than what you do. We are all in the sacred high calling of seeking the kingdom of God in and through everything that we do. Whether it's raising kids, teaching students, financial planning, dealing with patients as a doctor, whatever it is, feeding people at our restaurants... Every one of us is a sacred minister. You are called a saint. He says he is building a kingdom of priests, not a kingdom with priests. You are the priest. You intercede between God and man through your daily lives. 
We have got to abolish that sacred, secular wall that we build. Your life, your job, your work is not about an abundance of possessions so you can be safe, secure, and comfortable. To help us get this point, he moves in verse 24 and says, Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than those birds? Don't be driven by providing for safety, security, and comfort. Don't let that be what defines you. God will take care of that. Let's use that anxious term. Don't be driven by your anxiousness to do that. Let God be anxious for that. He can handle it. And it's futile anyway. Verse 25, And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? None of us can do that. If then you're not able to do something as simple, as small as that thing, then why are you anxious about the rest? It's futile. It's hopeless. It's a terrible existence. To do all that you do, to think that you're going to make sure that you have comfort and security and you're going to build a big enough barn that you can relax, eat, drink, and be merry. It's miserable. It's humbling. Because you have to admit, I can't do it. I'm not God. You can't be a fool. You can't say there's no God. You have to admit there is a God. Only God controls the number of days you have. Only God controls your abilities to earn. Only God gave you certain gifts and wirings. To some, he gives the ability to do so much financially. To others, he gives the ability to do so much emotionally, but he decides it all. And in a moment, it can all be gone. And where will you be when that happens? It's foolish and futile to live as if there is no God. In verse 27, we're encouraged again that God is good. God will provide. It's one thing to know God is sovereign and powerful and and that we aren't God and we are subject to God. But it's another thing to also know that he's good. He's sovereign and he's good. He's good. He loves you. Just look around. Look at the lilies in verse 27. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass like that, which is alive and only for a field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? How much more valuable are you than a lily or a grass? And if he's doing that, how much more will he do for you who live eternally? And it's not just gone tomorrow. Oh, you of little faith. You see, there's the key, faith. It requires faith. Faith in the scriptures is being convicted, convinced of the things unseen. You must live with faith that there is a God who is sovereign and who is good. And you serve him because he died on the cross for your sins. 
And therefore, we do not have to seek and strive and live with all of our might for what we will eat or what we will drink, nor be worried for all the nations. That's the way the nations, the world lives. They seek after these things. But you and your Father, your loving Father, knows you need them. Remember the Lord's Prayer last week. Our Father that Jesus gives us the right, the privilege to very personally go to the God of the universe, the creator, the all-powerful one, and say, Dad, I've got a lot of needs. I'm trusting you to take care of those things as I focus on your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that your mindset when you get up each day? That you are serving the king and advancing the kingdom wherever you go, whatever you do. The fool lives as if there is no God, as if there is no higher purpose or significance or meaning to our daily activities. The fool is focused on self-reliance and is about getting as much as they can and keeping as much as we can so that we can feel safe and secure and comfortable and relaxed. But underneath all of it, there is this nagging, hopeless sense of futility. There is a better way. Verse 31, we see in contrast to the foolish we see the faithful. Here he starts to build a picture, a profile of the faithful. This is who we want to be. This is what we want to leave here and say, that's what I want to be. I want to be faithful. Verse 31, instead of all of that, seek his kingdom. And all that will be added. All of that will be taken care of. Your job is seek his kingdom. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure. He loves you. He takes pleasure in giving you the kingdom. So you are free, to verse 33, to sell your possessions and give to the needy to provide yourselves money bags that don't grow old. Your focus is eternal. You're looking to the future eternal reward, the kingdom of God that he takes pleasure in giving you. And as you free, you have this abundance mentality to sell your possessions, to give to the needy. You're providing yourselves money bags that don't grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And that treasure does not fail does not disappoint, does not leave you empty and hopeless and saying, there's got to be more to life than this. I have experienced it. And I want you to know what it feels like. He says, seek his kingdom. Have a kingdom mindset towards your labors. Have a kingdom mindset towards your money. Have a kingdom mindset towards your possessions. Have a kingdom mindset towards your giftedness. No matter what you do, it's all a part of serving the glory of God in his kingdom. Our lives, our work, our money, they're all designed to be tools that we use to serve. They are not objects that we are to serve. They serve to provide our needs. The Bible teaches us work hard, provide for your family. 
Proverbs speaks about working hard and being wise and saving money, providing inheritance, leaving a legacy, saving up for rainy days. Those are all good things that we should be doing, but not as practicing atheists, as if there's no God. We do it as a way of serving God and seeking his kingdom. And when we do that, he provides us I love this concept. He provides us an abundance mentality as opposed to a scarcity mentality. When we understand that it is all God's and we are not owners but we are stewards, it is his and he is providing for all of our needs and we are just using all of this and to give, to advance, and he will provide more. It is so much more enjoyable than what I have lived with most of my life, which is a scarcity mentality, which makes me want to be careful. Oh, that's competition. Oh, if they find out, instead to say, it is, there's plenty to go around. Live to spread the kingdom joy. The fool has a scarcity mentality and is greedy and is anxious about letting go and is white-knuckled gripped on every one of his possessions. But the faithful has an abundance mentality that says, this is all the Lord's, and there's plenty more where this came from. And I could give. I don't have to be afraid. I could take risk for the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. We're set free from greed and able to focus on his eternal purposes. So the faithful one's focus shifts from temporary, temporal, to eternal. It's not just about this life. It's about eternal purposes. And the faith of one lives with the reality that God is real. That God is behind it all. And that God is good. And God will provide. And that God is watching. And that's where he goes next. In 35 and following, Jesus uses the imminent return, his imminent return to motivate us to faithful stewardship. In verse 41, I'll skip down to verse 41, Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for all of us? And the Lord said, well, who then is the faithful and wise manager? Not owner. Who is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Who's the steward who's faithful that the owner of all the house, all the goods, says, here, I want to trust you with all my possessions, and I'm expecting you to seek the good of the household, to bless others. And he says, and when I come back, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. I want you to see there that term manager. That term is a stewardship term. It's the complete opposite of an owner. If you have a money manager and you entrust that money manager to manage your money and they are to do it according to your wishes, your purposes, then they are a faithful manager if they do the best they can to provide your will be done with that money. But if you come one day and you give an accounting or you do an audit and you find they've been spending it on their purposes for their house, that's called embezzlement. That's Bernie Madoff. That's when they go to jail. The Lord says, you're a manager. 
you have a responsibility to manage the Lord's possessions for his purposes, not to embezzle it. And Jesus says, I'm coming back and I'll do an audit. And this is really convicting. Verse 48, second part. I want you to go home and read the pieces I'm skipping because it's like, wow. He says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Let me tell you what that's saying. He's saying there's two forms of accountability here. If you read the verses before, you see this. There's accountability for what you know, to whom much has been given in knowledge. If you know what God expects of you, that's one level of accountability. Then how much he's given you is another level of accountability. So there's this double accountability with what you know and what he's given you. He's made it very clear, this is what I want. And then he said, now I'm giving you a bunch of it, and I expect you to use all of this according to what I've told you. So there's this double blessing, double accountability. Now I want you to think about something. Think about all the Christians in the world, all the people in the world. Who knows the most of God's will? Who has the most of God's possessions? Where do we fall on that ranking? At the very top. And you just narrow it down. United States. Freedom. We know God's will. We've got the word of God. We have freedom to worship. And boy are we rich compared to the rest of the world. And then narrow it down to Shreveport. Narrow it down even further. Norris Ferry, we are doubly blessed and doubly accountable. And he's coming back. So what does this mean you should do? It means you should strive to build your business, build your book of business. Instead of obsessing over finding the next client so you can make enough money to pay the bills, to buy clothes, to take fun trips, I do all that. But instead of being focused on that and driven by that and the things perhaps that you can control in your power to give yourself security and comfort, instead focus on making an impact on every client, every student, every patient, every child, Every employee, how can you make an impact on them for God's kingdom? Viewing each customer, each client, each patient, each student, each employee, each employer, every single person that in your daily activity God brings into an encounter with you, he's saying, I want you to minister to that one. It will revolutionize your work. Right towards the end of my financial planning career, and it was time to transition into, I'm carefully choosing my words to reinforce this non-secular, sacred divide, to continue doing what I was doing, but only do it in the context of the walls of a church. 
Dana, open my eyes. This secular, sacred divide was paralyzing me. I'm supposed to be ministering. There's got to be more to life than this. She goes, how about doing that where you are? It's like, I hate it when she's right. And so I said, okay, she's right. This divide's killing me. And so I started praying, Lord, every person I encounter today, any client I have to talk about their investments or whatever, I'm going to assume you want me to minister to them first. Minister to them, love them, care for them. And literally, after I prayed that prayer, I won't always work this way. Let's not make this a prosperity gospel. But immediately after I prayed that prayer, my phone rang. And now back then, I was in the early days of my career. People didn't call me saying, hey, young kid, I want to give you my money. I was calling everyone I could find and saying, hey, would you trust me to manage your money? Well, I got a phone call. And it was this lady who said, hey, a long time ago I saw you got your CFP. I saw your name in the paper. And I'm just now calling you. Would you be willing to talk to me about my, my finances? I'm like, well, yeah. So I'm going to her house and I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful. Let me not be obsessed with just getting her money. Let me love her, care for her, minister her. I spent an hour at her kitchen table crying with her, praying with her. I still remember her. She was riddled with pain because she had been in a tragic accident and she had money to invest, but boy, was it different. We prayed together. I cared for her. I loved her. I grieved with her. I cried with her at her kitchen table. And then on the way out, it was just kind of like, oh, by the way, would you take care of this? I said, absolutely. Literally the next day, I get another phone call. And it's a gentleman who calls me and I'm like, what in the world happened? Why are people calling me? And he said, hey, I talked to your dad a long time ago. He told me about you. I've got some money. Would you come talk to me? And I went and talked to him, and we grieved together because the money he had was insurance proceeds from the death of his wife. I ministered to him. I grieved with him. I prayed with him. And then I helped him with his money. It radically transformed my view of what I was doing. That's what I want to happen to you. I'm not the only minister here. Whether it's inside the walls of the church or outside in the business community, in the education system, in your home, you are a sacred minister. What a privilege you have to impact this city for the kingdom of God. The question is this, will you be fooled? Live as if there is no God who's coming back to hold you accountable for how you've stewarded his resources or will you be faithful and seek the kingdom of God and view every single person as a person that God says, I want you to minister to them for my glory. Father God, we praise you and thank you for your calling to seek the kingdom in all that we do. We thank you that every single one of us has an extraordinarily significant role to play in your kingdom. That we are all saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are all ministers by the blood of Jesus Christ. We all have significance and there is tremendous value and meaning in everything we do. There is no mundane task because we are spreading your love, your grace, your kindness and compassion and mercy all to your glory.
Help us to be faithful. Help us to steward all things for your kingdom. In this Christ's name we pray. Amen.